Logan was surprised and Jerry was surprised. We are past time, so we should probably get the ball rolling a little bit. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer and we will jump into our review. God, we thank you for your mercy that is new every morning, that you love us and you care for us and you don't give us what we deserve. And God, we are sinners against a holy and righteous God and yet we are not burning in hell, that you've given us a, another day to live, another breath to breathe, and we're not worthy, but we're thankful. We are uh, here to, to honor you this morning, here to worship you, here to learn about you. We pray that you would open up our eyes to the truth of your text as we open up the book of Mark, that we would have a better, deeper understanding of who you are, that we would get a glimpse into your uh, compassion, your your tender care of um uh, your, your deity of who you are. God, help us to have a, a joy for you, a, a passion for knowing you more, and for sharing that truth with others. Amen. All right. Well, we are jumping into Mark chapter 8 this morning. Before we do that, we should go back and review a little bit from Mark chapter 7, some things that we've looked at in recent weeks. So, First question I have for us, looking back to last week, is why is uh, geography uh, so significant when we were when we were considering the account of the Syrophoenician woman and the the deaf man that we looked at last week? Remember, we looked at the woman from Syrophoenicia and the man who was deaf and mute; he couldn't really speak that well. Uh, what role did geography play in those two accounts? Logan, can you turn me down a little bit or see why that's so teeny? Wasn't it way out of the way, so <laughs> specifically had to target it? Yeah, it was quite a bit out of the ways. And uh, what was unique about where it was located geographically? Was it a Samaritan place? Or? No, right? I can't remember something. Yeah, it was uh, Syrophoenicia, so a little bit north of Samaria in that area. But um, why, why is that unique in Israel? Syrophoenicians were enemies of, they tricked the Israelites early. Uh, that? That's the, the Gibeonites again. We're getting Gibeonites mixed up with the Canaanites. They're right there together. Um, but yeah, they were not Jewish, right? They were Gentiles. So it's a Gentile area that Jesus went in up in Syrophoenicia and then again down in the Decapolis when he was dealing with this mute man. Uh, both of those areas were Gentile areas. And um, looking back at that text, turn with me to Mark 7 if you're not there, and looking at verse 27. What is it that Jesus was communicating in Mark 7, 27? And what can we glean from the woman's response in the next verse, in verse 28, when Jesus was dealing with this Syrophoenician woman? What was he saying to her, and what does her response tell us about her? Just recognizing, I mean, as far as to call her a dog, and she totally accepted that and said that even they get crumbs, and his power is so great that even his crumbs can help. Yeah, she was satisfied with that. Just, just give me some of the crumbs. Just 
a little bit the truth. We see uh, a glimpse into her her faith that she just she wants some some of Jesus, right? Just a little bit of the crumbs would suffice. And yeah, in twenty seven we talked about quite a bit that Jesus came for the Jew first, right? And then for the Gentile. Not for the, the Jew exclusively, but for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And he was there in these Gentile areas, these Gentile regions, uh, showing grace and compassion and healing these uh, Gentile people who were in need. And yeah, you know, once again, her, her faith just really shines in that she didn't get upset, she didn't run away. Uh, but she kept asking persistently and said, just, just a little bit of the crumbs, please. And then going down a little bit farther, in verse 32, uh, people in the Decapolis, where the deaf mute man was healed, they already seemed to be familiar with Jesus' ministry. How is this possible? Yeah, good. In chapter 5, the man who had been possessed with the legion of demons, right? And he wanted to follow after Jesus. He said, just let me get in the boat. Let me go with you. And Jesus said, no, it's, it's not for you. And unlike a lot of the other people, including the, the deaf mute man, he didn't say, just be quiet about it. But he told him, no, you go and you tell everybody else in the Decapolis, in these 10 cities, that's what the Decapolis is, all about who I am and all about what I did for you. And that's exactly what he did. And lo and behold, we show up on the scene a couple of chapters later and people are coming up to Jesus, already familiar with who he is, with what he can do and bring all their sick before Jesus so that he can do the same thing for their loved ones that he did for this one demon-possessed man. Any thoughts or questions on Mark 7 before we delve into chapter 8? Yes, Jerry. Well, the Syrophoenician's woman's attitude is very amazing and contrasts so incredibly with later history where so-called Christians were arrogant toward the Jews and hmm. the ghettos and just treated them abominably and even Sammy Martin Luther had yeah. some of that attitude. Yeah, Martin that Luther was that kind of anti-Semitic. It's so crazy that we who say we follow a Jew should Especially considering all the promises God made to them, the fact that all of our blessings are based on His promises to them. Yeah, it's a good reminder. Why that's why we went into the dark ages. And there's music coming from the computer. <laughs> I was wondering so if they were singing the other class or what. Um, but yes, she. She had an understanding of that fact that Jesus was there for the Jews first and a respect for that even. Uh, acceptance of, yes, I'm a Gentile, but just just give me something, please. And uh, Paul hits on that in Romans, Romans 9. He's talking about, well, the Jews, you know, they he's kind of given all these issues with, even though they have the, the promises and the covenants and all these blessings are theirs, they've turned their back on, on God. But one day they're going to come back and Israel will know the Lord. But he's talking about in chapter 11, talks about Israel as an olive tree. And he says that we as Gentiles, we're going to be grafted into that tree. 
However, we shouldn't get puffed up. We shouldn't get proud because just as easily as it is for us to be grafted into that tree, they're the, the natural branches and they can be grafted back in and they will be grafted back in. They're going to come back to an understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. They'll repent and realize we, we got it wrong and they will be in the, the kingdom of God in that, that olive tree that is pictured in Romans 11. So yeah, we shouldn't in any way um, be disparaging towards the, the Jewish race, but have that same kind of attitude that the Syrophoenician woman had. All right, I'm now on Spotify. That's not where I want to be. All right, let's jump into uh, Mark 8. <clears throat> but before we do that, let's pull up a map and look at where we were um, geographically before. So as I said, um, well, at the beginning of Mark 7, the, the Pharisees, they were testing Jesus about his hand washing. Remember that? And um, we had this whole kind of dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees about whether they should trust in tradition or whether they should trust in scripture. And this all takes place in Capernaum, which is north of the, the Sea of Galilee. And then last week we looked at verse 24, which says that Jesus went 40 miles to the north, up to Tyre, that coastal city over on the left side of your screen. And then verse 31 says that he went through Sidon, another 20 miles to the north, to get to the Sea of Galilee and Decapolis, which is down towards the south. So he went intentionally out of his way to go through Sidon to go down to the Decapolis, again, the, the 10 cities, which is another Gentile area. And now uh, both Mark and Matthew give us an account of this, uh, these travels of Jesus and what he's doing in this section. But neither one of them changed the scenery entering into Mark chapter 8. So entering into Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus is still down in the region of the Decapolis, south of the Sea of Galilee. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 8. And can I actually get two people to read that for us? We'll split it up. So somebody to read verses 1 through 5, and then somebody else to pick up and do 6 through 10. Who's got one through five? Andy? And six through ten? All right, thanks, Rick. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over and seven baskets full. And there was about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Dominathula. All right. Is this account sounding a little bit familiar? This is... Uh, very similar to the one back in chapter 6, right? The account of the feeding of the 5,000. But there's one drastic difference here, one that we've already kind of alluded to. What is the, the big difference between 
the mass feeding in Mark chapter 8 and the mass feeding back in Mark chapter 6. That is a difference. Number of people. So there is more back in chapter 6, right? 5,000 men. 4,000 men here in Mark chapter 8. They were trying to take him on horse, weren't they? Uh, yeah, afterwards. Not. Oh, yeah, you're, you're kind of starting to, to get on it. Um, talking about where it took place, right? Um, so, yeah, it was after the feeding of 5,000 that they wanted to take him by force, not in a negative way, but to make him king. They wanted to uh, establish him as king so that he could establish his kingdom and their freedom from the Romans. But remember, that took place back in the region of Galilee. And as we just walked through and mentioned, they're no longer in the region of Galilee, right? They are now down in the Decapolis. They're now in a, a Gentile region. So... This group would have been largely Gentile, while the 5,000 back in Mark chapter 6, they would have been primarily Jewish. So that is a, a huge difference, that Jesus was, again, first sent to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. He first went to feed the 5,000, and now he's in this Gentile region, focusing on the feeding of the 4,000, uh, primarily Gentiles. Yes, Steve. So did he do this twice? One with the Jews and one with the Gentiles? Yes. Yep. Two different accounts. How many times? Twice. Twice. Okay. Yep. Good. Alright. That explains <laughs> Yep. Two different accounts. This time, at least here in Mark, it's just Jesus that's initiating this. Good. Yeah, Jesus is the one who's kind of asking the disciples here, right? What what should we do? How are we going to feed these people? That's also a, another distinctive. And the disciples still seem kind of clueless. <laughs> Amen. Yep. They are definitely clueless, right? How, after having already watched this, they're still kind of sitting back and just, it's, it's not clicking. They're, they're not getting it. Is, is it not? Are they not getting it? Or is it, can you do it again? Because I'd be like, I'm guilty of, I'm like, okay, God, I, I know you've done this once. Can you do it again? And sometimes there's just this, I guess it's a humility. God, there's, I just can't do this. This is something that only you can do. And, and I keep asking, you know? And yeah. Thinking, I mean, that's not here, but for me, it would be like, do I ask him to do this again? <laughs> so, so not can he do this again? Is he able to do this yes, again? But he will he would he, am I worthy for him to do this again for me kind yeah. of thing, right? Well, I'm asking you again. Yeah, and that's a good place to be. I don't think that's where the disciples are. Okay. Uh, maybe I'm I'm reading that wrong, but I don't think that they are expecting Jesus to do this, and they just don't consider themselves worthy. I don't think that it's even entering their mind. They're just they're in a, another place altogether. And later on in the the second section of our text today, we're going to see that Jesus kind of gets a little bit forward with them and says, "Are you are you so blind? Are you still not getting it? What what's going on?" How are you not? How are you missing this kind of thing? So that is a, a good place to be to realize that yes, God is so good to me, and He's blessed me in the past. That doesn't mean that He's going to bless me again, right? I don't want to be presumptuous on the grace of God. Um, I don't think that's where the disciples are right here, though. All right. So uh, we remember that both 
Matthew and Mark give an account of this, a, a parallel account, however different accounts, right? They're not synonymous. So let's look at Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 15. And I have it up here for us on the screen. Matthew 15, tw- 29 through 32. And it starts off with the, the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter. So 28 at the end says, and her daughter was healed at once, immediately, right? 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, that's the one that Mark decided to focus on, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet and healed them. Are you seeing how Matthew's adding these different things that Jesus did that Mark kind of skipped over? He he touched on his healing of the mute person. He expounded upon that um, but Matthew's giving a, a slightly different account and then he goes on he says so the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified who the God of Israel right because it's not their God again Jesus is doing this in a Gentile region so they glorified the God of Israel and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people. So a lot of this, again, is parallel with Mark. But uh, Matthew also adds a little bit of detail that, that Mark leaves out that Jesus did quite a bit. He performed many other miracles while he was there. Uh, and so the, uh, the healed demoniac's testimony, in addition to Jesus' many works in this area and the resulting disobedient proclamation of the people. Remember, Jesus told the, the mute man and, and everybody else, you guys keep a lid on it. You guys be quiet. They didn't listen. They went out and they proclaimed what Jesus had done for them. So I think all these things working together, the, uh, the once legion possessed man, plus Jesus doing all these miracles, plus them going out and proclaiming these miraculous works to the people in the surrounding area, added to an increasingly large crowd. So I think that's how we end up with 4,000 men here uh, listening to Jesus. And they had been listening to him for a while. Did you guys catch how long they were there with Jesus? He said they'd been here for, for three days. And that's quite a while for them to be listening to Jesus. And remember, Jesus' primary reason for being here is to preach and to teach, right? That's what he came for. Back in chapter 1, maybe 34, 35, somewhere in there. Um, that's what Peter comes to, to Jesus and says, hey, we, we need more, more healing. People are looking for you. They want to, to see these miraculous works. And Jesus says, no, I came to preach. So I'm going to go to these other towns and I'm going to continue to preach. So Jesus here preaching for three days um, gets to the point where uh, he speaks up and as... I think, Jerry, you mentioned, right? Uh, in Mark chapter 6, Mark says that disciples are the ones who initiated the conversation, saying, hey, we got a bunch of hungry people here. But here in uh, verses 2 and 3, it's Jesus himself who speaks up. So he says, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And so while uh, perhaps I might be reading into 
the, the prior account a little bit in thinking that the disciples were kind of a little bit selfish in their bringing this to Jesus' attention. Remember, just a few verses before, it said that they hadn't even had lunch. They hadn't had time to sit down after coming back from their missionary journey. So I think perhaps they were kind of hungry too. And they were a little bit, you know, impatient with the crowd and everything that was going on. So they came to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, people are hungry. Uh, you guys ever had somebody come to you like that? Um, especially with complaints. We'll say, hey, people are talking. People aren't happy about X, Y, or Z. It's like, who are people? And what are they saying? Uh, I, I don't like those kind of vague accusations. A lot of times I think they're kind of veiled by the person bringing that accusation to you. They're the ones who are really disgruntled in some way. And again, maybe I'm reading into the text, but that's kind of the vibe that I get from the disciples. That they're coming in, even if they only have a, a slight hunger within their stomachs or a slight complaint or something, they're still set to benefit from Jesus feeding the people. But here, there, Mark doesn't leave any question for us that Jesus' motivation is his compassion for the people. Again, verse 2, I feel compassion for the people because they remain with me now for three days. So Jesus isn't thinking at all about himself. Surely if he were hungry, he could just kind of sneak off and make himself a little snack, right? A hot pocket or a cheesy gordita crunch or something to feed himself. But he doesn't do that. That's not his concern. He's not concerned with himself, his own hunger. He had compassion for the people. He wasn't looking to gain any popularity with the people or to, to put on a show for the crowd. Um, any kind of glory that he gets from that would pale in comparison to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, right? John 17, 5. Um, he just told the, the deaf man, along with his friends, you guys be quiet. Don't say anything because he's not looking for fame and recognition from the people. Uh, in, in one sense, uh, he, does in, he does this in order to, to draw attention to himself, not for his own glory, but so that others might come to know him. He's not looking to, to gain favor with the people, but he reveals himself to them so that they might know who he is and they might uh, come into favor with God and be one with him. So even in wanting to, to lift himself up, it's for selfless reasons. He came not to be served, but to serve, right? We see in this account, just like we saw in the, the previous account, the feeding of the 5,000, down in verse 8, that they ate and they were satisfied. So not only did they just get a little bit of food to kind of quench their hunger, uh, but they ate to the point of satisfaction. Um, they, they were full, and they still had leftovers, seven baskets full of leftovers. And once again, just like before, Matthew adds that this was the feeding of the men, 4,000 men besides women and children. So realistically, it would be much closer to 20,000 people that Jesus was feeding. Um, and as we mentioned before, with the, the feeding of the 5,000, that was Jesus' uh, broadest miracle that touched the most people and impacted the most people. And surely they would go out and they would tell their, their neighbors and their friends and their family, guess what? Guess what happened to us? We were out there for three days and we had nothing to eat. and We didn't know what to do. And Jesus just, poof, made bread and fish appear. 
this would be by far a, a far-reaching miracle that they would have been able to tell people about for, for a long time afterwards. And then uh, the text tells us down in verse 10 that immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. So after dinner, Jesus and his disciples, they once again head across the, the Sea of Galilee. So they have this whole uh, journey down to the, this Gentile region. Jesus heals people along the way. They have this feeding of the, the 4,000 while they're there. And um, Steve, as, as you mentioned in, in question, these are definitely two different accounts, feeding of the, the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. A lot of people will want to try to take them and, and mix them together. They'll try to say, well, these are actually just two, two mentionings of one account. Jesus, maybe, maybe he did this once. Again, liberal Christianity, people who start with a completely different starting point from where we do, they don't take the Bible seriously. And they'll say, well, yeah, perhaps there were just two accounts that, of one event that Jesus did. What kind of problems do you guys see with that understanding? These two, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, really only being one account. Well, you miss the difference between the Jewish and the Gentile. Yes. Yeah. And it could be used to fake a contradiction in scripture. Yeah. yeah, and that's seems like the, the motivation that people have yep. to say, well, there's a contradiction and to downplay the deity of Christ, right? Yep. It's definitely the motivation. Well and, and that's you know, when you talk this beginning, what's the importance of the location? Well this distinctly makes them two different events because they're in two separate places. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, so the, the details are completely different, right? Uh, Dory, as you mentioned, the, the number is different. There are 5,000 in the first account and 4,000 men here in the second account. Uh, there were five loaves and two fish in the first account. Here it's seven loaves and a few fish and different amounts of stuff that was left over, 12 baskets with the feeding of the 5,000 and seven with the feeding of the 4,000. Very different details of uh, how many people were fed and what was used to feed these people. Uh, different accounts of the geography, the cities that they took place in, uh, very different details that we have in, in both of these. And the, the place that he went to after, where he departed to, different in both accounts. Um, and remember, it's Matthew and Mark who record the feeding of the 4,000. Who records the feeding of the 5,000? All of them, right? So somehow, these liberal Christians want to uh, hypothesize that Matthew and Mark, they both wrote down these two different accounts without realizing that, oh yeah, it's really the, the same account. And they, they messed up on these details in the exact same way as the other author messed up on the details. They just, it, it slipped their mind. Oh yeah, I already penned that. I already wrote about the feeding of the, the 5,000 and still included the, the same faulty details. And still, there's the, the whole issue of Second uh, Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is God breathed, right? And Second Peter one twenty one that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is carrying along these authors as they are writing these things out. So again, they are starting with a completely different starting point, completely different presuppositions, completely different 
foundations as to the, the authority of the Bible, the reliability and veracity of the text. And that's why they uh, have these different hypotheses that kind of undermine the authority of the text. Yes, Andy. Well, and not only that, but the Gospels were, what, written 25, 30 years, 20 years after the events. <clears throat> and you're talking about four people plus whoever they're speaking to, talking about events that happened 20, 25 years earlier, 30 years earlier. It, in other words, I can barely remember yesterday, okay? Yeah. I can remember big events in my life 30, 40 years ago, 45 years ago. And if there are multiple witnesses that are talking about the same thing, that would lend more veracity to it than not. Because, you know, John, right? John is writing years, years after the earlier Gospels came out. Yeah. So he's and he's what uh, in exile on Patmos, mm -hmm. right? So I mean, he's saying the same events took place. He's not going to be, you know, chatting with Peter or someone else because Peter's already gone. Number one. But in other words. It came, it came about organically as the Holy Spirit directed it. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And that's why we have different accounts from different authors. And we can go to Matthew and see, oh, he did more than just heal the, the mute man, right? He did all these other miracles. But Mark, wanting to focus on Jesus as the suffering servant, he's going to focus in on this mute man and how Jesus came and he took him aside one by one. He healed them in this really weird kind of miraculous way. Um, they're, they're both telling the same story, but they're focusing on different things and telling it in a different way. And um, going back to one of our, our first lessons about the, the Gospels, that's why these liberal theologians have to propose that they're borrowing from each other, that Matthew and Luke, they're, they're using Mark in his writings and adding in this other Q Gospel that doesn't really exist. And when you start with bad foundations, you're going to end up in a bad place. What I like in here is that uh, uh, he took the seven loaves and gave thanks. And then with the fish, had a few small fishes, and he blessed. So he, he's giving thanks and blessing food. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a real message for us. Uh, and all that we do and about our daily activities, if we continually praise God, thank God, and bless God mm -hmm. for the many blessings He has given us, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's thanking God. He's blessing the food. And, but then this is what it's like to have a prayer always in your heart because you're thanking God, you're praising God, and you're glorifying God's name. And all that we do. Yes, good. And so I find that very, very interesting that Jesus, the Son of God, is thanking God for food. 
And that's kind of the, the example that Jesus gives us in the disciples' prayer too, right? When the disciples say, teach us how to pray. He says, well, you pray like this. You start off honoring God, saying, hallowed be your name. Saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you say, well, give us this day our, our daily bread, what we need today. And he's given them this, this model prayer that models the very same things that he's doing here. Thanking God for, for what he's done and, and blessing God for giving them the food, acknowledging where it came from. So, yeah, it's a, a good point of application. And even if we think we have a mundane life, let's praise God for it. Amen. Yep. Amen. In everything, we need to give thanks, yeah. right? All right, so the, the people that say that these are two different accounts, I think we can kind of write them off, right? Or that these, these two renderings are from the same account. They're clearly two different accounts, different details. Um, Mark and Matthew both mention them. Um, but uh, still others will find issue with a, a discrepancy between Matthew and Mark in regards to where they went to afterwards. Matthew's account says that they went to Magdala, where Mark says that they went to Dalmanutha. And some people will make a, a big deal about this. Well, it turns out that Dalmanutha was a city in the coasts of Magdala. Uh, let's see. Oh, I don't want to go there yet. Is my cursor up there? It's not. Oh, yeah, right there. There's Magdala on the uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so Dalmanutha was a, a city in that region. So um, I grew up in West Valley City. You guys know where West Valley's at, right? No? Oh, I'm seeing a couple of people shake their heads no. I work there. All right, Andy works there. Some of you guys know where West Valley is. You know where Twilla's at. <laughs> <laughs> in between the two mountains. There you go. Well, when I went off to school, I didn't tell people I was from West Valley City. Some of you guys don't even know where West Valley City is. I went off to school in Wyoming. I told them I was from Salt Lake City. They're like, oh yeah, I know where that's at. Um, I wasn't being deceptive or deceitful in telling them I was from Salt Lake City. I was just giving them a, a bigger region, something they would know, right? I was from uh, the metropolitan area of Salt Lake City. Uh, well, that's what's going on here. It's just Mark being a little bit more precise than Matthew, saying that he was from the city rather than the region, which is interesting that Matthew, who's writing to the Jews, um, is less precise about the geography that they would be familiar with than Mark would be. But that's not really the, the point. The main point is that Jesus is now heading back to the, the Jewish region. He's leaving the Decapolis, the, the ten Gentile cities, back to the Jewish region. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on to verse 11 about the feeding of the 4,000? We're in Mark chapter 8. All right, we will move on. So Mark chapter 8, uh, let's look at verses 11 through 13. Could I get somebody to read that for us, please? And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. All right, thank you. So, of course, right when Jesus gets back into town, back into the, the Jewish side of town, 
the Pharisees show up and they are right there to, to greet him, right? Not with uh, any kind of pleasantries or, or a gift basket, but they're there because they want to fight. Uh, verse 11, your translation might say that they questioned him, but uh, a better translation would say that they were there to uh, dispute with him or to debate him. They were there to argue with Jesus. That was their purpose in being there. And uh, just as Mark was very clear back in verse 2 about Jesus' motivation in feeding the 4,000, that he had compassion on them, he's very clear in the Pharisees' motivation in approaching Jesus. They're there because they want to argue with him. They're there because they want to test him, it says. They're not there because they're uh, genuinely seeking after God. They, they want to know more about this man, Jesus. Um, they're there to argue and to test him. And what is it that they, they ask Jesus for? They want from Jesus. Yeah, you believe that, that they're there to, to ask Jesus for a sign. If only Jesus would, would give them a sign, right? If only he would take a break for a moment from all the, the healing that he's doing, from all these miracles that he's performing, this bread that he's just multiplying out of nowhere, and uh, his command that he is speaking over the wind and the waves and the seas and all these demons that he's casting. If he would just take a break from that and give them a sign, that'd be mighty nice of Jesus, wouldn't it? Can you just see the, the density of the Pharisees coming to, to Jesus and saying, just give us a sign? That would be so helpful if you would show us who you are, if you would authenticate yourself for us. Uh, Jesus, the one who speaks with authority, whereas other scribes, they don't speak with authority because they're, they're quoting other people. We want a sign from you, Jesus. Uh, it's so ridiculous. Um, in John chapter 5, we read about five witnesses of Jesus. Uh, Jesus rightly says in verse 31 of John chapter 5, he says, If I alone testify of myself, then my testimony is not true. So he's saying if, if somebody just comes up and they say, yes, I'm, I'm divine, yes, I'm God, their testimony is not true. But Jesus does say that he testifies about himself. And then he goes on, he says, but there was John the Baptist. Remember the forerunner? He came and he was testifying about me before I was even on the scene. He was out in the wilderness and he was proclaiming that there's going to be one who comes that's greater than me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was testifying about me. And then he says in verse 36, the, the testimony that I have is greater than than John's, because the very works that God has sent me to do, the miracles that God has sent me to do, that he has commanded me to do, and which I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is testifying about himself. He says, John the Baptist testifies about me. He says, my miracles, my works, they testify about me. They testify that the Father has sent me. So the Father himself is testifying of Jesus. And then in verse 39, he says that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. He says, no, the scriptures, they testify about me too. So we have these five witnesses about Jesus. Jesus himself, uh, John the Baptist, his works, the, the Father, and the scriptures all testify about Jesus. So he's not just there on his own accord, on his own uh, initiative. He's there doing what Jesus has told him to do, and he has these five witnesses. Andy, then Steve. So... Jesus was 
was doing miracles all over the place. Yeah. Not only in front of the people by feeding them the 20,000 Jews, the 15, 20,000 Gentiles, but he did miracles in front of the Pharisees. Yep. Okay. He did it once. You've got your sign. There it is. There's yep. your sign. How many times does God have to speak? How many times do I have to do this? You've seen it. You don't, you don't like what I'm saying. Therefore, you come back to me always asking for another sign. Yep. Good. Steve. The, the issue about having a sign, well, in, in uh, I believe it's Luke 18, where the, the rich man died. 16. And he's not in a good situation. And he wants to go back and tell his Yep. Uh, his family and what's going on and, and I think there was a, a quote in there saying that even if someone came back from the dead they wouldn't believe him yeah good yeah so, so the Pharisees they're, they're thinking well if we only had this sign from Jesus and, and maybe we can be tempted to look at that and say yeah why didn't Jesus just give them a sign then they would have believed and more people would believe and everything would be good but no as you mentioned Luke 16 the Lazarus and the rich man uh Lazarus is told, no, even if a, a man comes back from the dead, they're not going to believe. They have Abraham, and they don't believe. If they don't believe with Abraham, then they're not going to believe, even if a man comes back from the dead. So we don't just need more information. We don't just need uh, another sign. Uh, John chapter 6 says that unless the Father draws them to himself, then they're unable to, to come. Um, it's not a, a matter of needing another sign. It's a matter of needing a, a heart change. And that's what Jesus is going to get into here in a second. Jerry. But we also need to see that Jesus is even compassionate towards the Pharisees right then. Because yes. When you or I, we would have said, yes, I'll show you a sign. Oof. Uh-huh. Blind no more. That's what James and John wanted to do, right? Can, can we just call down fire from heaven on the city? And Jesus says, no. So yes, even in that, Jesus is compassionate. And rather than giving them a sign, Jesus sighs. He has a, a loud groan, a, a deep sigh. One lexicon says that it was a lament. So uh, Jesus is lamenting over the Pharisees' testing question. He is saddened by the fact that they're still asking for a sign. They're not seeing it. They're, they're not getting it. And it, Mark says that Jesus said that no sign is going to be offered. You guys don't get a sign. Well, Mark, or Matthew rather, offers one exception. Um, Matthew 12, 38 through 40 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. <laughs> but he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. That is our generation too, by the way. Our world says, Oh, if only Jesus would, would show himself to me. If he would reveal himself to me, then I would believe. How arrogant. Um, he goes on, he says, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll raise myself up from the dead. That'll be a sign for you. Jesus is... Uh, uh, he is, it's not just Jesus or just the Father who raises himself up from the dead, uh, but the whole triune God is involved in this miraculous work of raising himself from the dead. Remember Jesus said, tear down this temple and three days later, I will raise it up again. So talk about a sign. That is uh, an absolute sign. That is the, the ultimate sign 
from Jesus, that he would raise himself from the dead. And so while it was lost on them at, at the time, they didn't really understand what Jesus was saying in referencing this sign of Jonah. He promises to give them this ultimate sign of his resurrection, and they're still going to reject that. That's still not going to be sufficient for them. They're still going to turn their backs on Jesus. And Jesus, um, he rebuked them for not being able to discern who he was, that they didn't know who Jesus was. Uh, another passage over in Mark, in Mark 16, um, talking about the, the same thing as sign from Jonah. Jesus says to them um, that while it's evening, you're able to go out and you're able to see the, the red sky and you're able to say, well, tomorrow's going to be a good day. And at the same time, you're able to go out and you're able to see the, the red sky in the morning and you're able to say, oh, today's going to be a, a stormy day. Uh, what is this? It's red at night, sailors delight. Red in the morning, sailors take warning. That old saying that went all the way back to, to these days. And Jesus calls out these uh, religious leaders and he says, you know what? You guys make better weathermen than you do theologians. You guys can look at the sky and you can know what's going to happen. But you're unable to read the signs of the times. You're unable to know who I am, that the Messiah has come, that I am here. And I'm doing all these miraculous things. Shame on you, right? You guys are, are better at this than you are at knowing the religious texts that you guys claim to be uh, masters of. Um, he had uh, uh, compassion for them. He lamented over them, but he recognized that they weren't getting it, right? He kind of called them out for that. All right, verses 14 through 21. I'll go ahead and read that real quick. Any other quick thoughts or questions on verses 11 through 13 first? All right. Verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a, hard, a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember that when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. Uh, and when I broke the seven... For the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? So Mark tells us that the disciples left on this boat trip without really preparing. They didn't take along the, the right amount of bread with them, right? It says that they had less than a loaf of bread. Does that seem like enough food to feed 13 grown men? Well, if you have Jesus with you, then absolutely it's enough, right? That's kind of what Jesus is getting at. Don't, don't you guys remember? Um, they clearly still didn't understand this simple fact. Like you said before, I mean, they're, they're still not getting it. Even after seeing the, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, they're still concerned about their lack of bread. Sitting right next to Jesus, who they've seen a couple times now, multiply all this food for them, and they're concerned about bread. Uh, they're confused about Jesus 
statement about the, the levin. And their response reveals a, a lack of recognition. It shows that they don't really know who they're sitting next to. They haven't really gotten it yet. They still don't know that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jesus had to remind them that even had he been talking about physical bread, it wouldn't be a problem for him, right? That's why he goes in and he talks about the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. That's not the issue, but if it was, they're in good hands, right? Steve? Uh, I, I think 11, uh, another definition for that is unbelief. So the unbelief of the Pharisees, the leaven, and leaven, when you put that in bread, the bread expands. And leaven also means sin. Yeah, that's, that's one way to, to understand it for sure. And that's good. So Jesus, he's not talking about the bread, right? He's trying to, to make this point of the leaven. And so while um, oftentimes leaven can be talking about sin, I don't think leaven's always talking about sin in scripture, right? Uh, because we have Matthew thirteen thirty three, which says that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, right? And so if we equate leaven with sin, we're kind of in a little bit of a bind there. We say the kingdom of heaven is like sin. Um, not quite, but sometimes it does mean sin. So um, we have to, I think in, in that case, talking about the kingdom of heaven being like leaven, that's comparing it like we look back at in chapter 4 to the mustard seed, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts out small and it, it grows, it expands. Um, we see this principle laid out, spelled out for us in Galatians 5.9. Galatians 5.9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So leaven can refer to sin, but it doesn't always refer to sin. It's referring to the fact that just a little bit, just a tiny bit, really leavens into the whole thing. It really permeates through the whole loaf of dough. And in this text, um, Jesus points out two specific kinds of leaven. What are the kinds of leaven that he's referring to here in the text? Yeah, so he warns of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Can I get two volunteers to look up those two passages for us? Matthew and in Luke. Both these authors speak to the leaven of the Pharisees. Who's got Matthew 16, 12 for us? Somebody headed towards Matthew 16, 12. Let's see what he says. All right, go ahead. And they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, so there, Matthew kind of spells it out for us, right? He says that the leaven of the Pharisees is the, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out for their, their teaching, what they're saying. What about Luke? What does he say? Luke 12, verse 1. So Matthew says the leaven of the Pharisees is their, their teaching. Watch out for their teaching. Luke says the leaven is their hypocrisy. They're uh, a bunch of hypocrites. And we saw this just recently in Mark's text that the Pharisees are seeking to, to trick Jesus, right? They're, they're there to uh, play these word games with him, to trap him. 
and this reveals their, their hypocrisy. That they come and they say, oh, we just have a question, Jesus. They don't have a question. They're just hypocrites. They're trying to trap him. And their, their teaching also is leavened. Um, it's hypocritical. This focus on tradition rather than on scripture, which leads to a, a legalistic man-made tradition. Jesus is saying, watch out for these things. That leaven, this hip, hypocritical teaching of the Pharisees. You guys need to be on guard against that. And what about the, the leaven of Herod? What have we seen recently in, in Mark's text that Herod uh, demonstrated in uh, how he dealt with people? What is the leaven of Herod? Yes. He, he doesn't have a backbone, right? And so while Herod didn't seem to be overtly antagonistic towards the truth, he, he still was willing to listen to John. He liked to listen to John the Baptist. We looked at this a couple chapters ago. Um, he still was unwilling to ultimately submit to the truth. He didn't embrace the truth for his own. Uh, perhaps Herod could be understood as um, the seed that fell along the rocky soil that immediately received it but was unable to stand up under the pressure. He didn't have a backbone. He wasn't willing to submit to the truth. So we see in this text that the disciples, they were focused on their lack of bread, right? That wasn't Jesus' focus. Jesus was focused on their lack of faith. And did you notice how many different questions Jesus asked them throughout this response? Um, verse 17 Jesus, aware of this, um, that they were discussing these things, he said, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or, under, or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not yet hear? Do you not remember? And then he wraps up down to verse 21. Do you not yet understand? He's saying, you guys just, you don't get it. You guys aren't there. He's asking all these questions to point out their, their spiritual blindness, their lack of understanding. Next week, we're going to look at an account of a, a blind man who um, kind of portrays, he's a, he serves as a good picture of where the disciples' spiritual understanding is. They're, they're blind. They're not yet getting it. And when we stop and consider everything that the disciples have witnessed up until this point, they've They've seen a lot. They've been with Jesus for a while. They've witnessed all kinds of different things that, that he's done. And this fact alone should convince us that we don't just need another sign, right? The Pharisees saying, just, just give us a sign. The disciples saw all kinds of signs, and they still weren't getting it. They were still blind. They still weren't seeing. We have all that we need, right? Uh, Romans 1 talks about how what may be known about God has been made plain to us because God has made it plain to us. Since the beginning of the world, his invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made. And we're left without an excuse. Second uh, Peter 1.3 says that we have all things that we need uh, divinely given to us by his power for life and godliness. Everything that we need. So we don't need uh, any other sign. We don't need anything else. We are actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And what we need is to surrender to God to pray that he would open up our eyes and give us the ability to be able to see. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. In our, our natural state, 
spiritual things are, are foolishness. It says that he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John 3? He said, I, I've given you earthly things. I've revealed to you and shown you earthly things, and you haven't believed me. Why would I give you spiritual things? We're not going to be able to understand that either. And so that's kind of what Jesus is saying to the disciples. You guys still aren't getting it. You're still unable to see. And just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, talking to the Corinthians, he says, I, I want to give you guys meat, but you guys aren't able to, to eat meat. I still have to give you guys milk. Or like Jude, who wanted to, to make every effort to, to come to the believers in their common faith, he says that he felt it necessary to appeal to them to first contend earnestly to the faith. And now Jesus here, he wasn't really able to address the concern that he wanted to with the disciples because of their lack of understanding. He wants to talk to them about the warning them. Watch out for this leaven of the, the Pharisees. Watch out for this leaven of Herod. And they're all concerned about bread. And so Jesus says, you guys, you're still not getting it. You can't even see. I can't have this discussion that I want to have with you because you're spiritually immature. You're, you're not there yet. You guys haven't had your eyes open. You're not able to see. And as I mentioned next week, we're going to look at this blind man who kind of portrays where they're at right now. And then we'll look at uh, Peter's great confession where, where Peter finally starts to see you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You're not just John the Baptist. You're not Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You are the Messiah. But they're still not there. They're still not getting it. One day, they, they will get it. Those references up there on the board, John 14, John 16, talk about how Jesus is going to send them the Holy Spirit one day, and he's going to remind them of everything that Jesus taught them, and they'll get it, and it will click. But right now, they're not there. Final thoughts or questions as we wrap up. Do you think Jesus sighed a lot? <laughs> yes, Jesus must have sighed often, right? Uh, walking a bunch of a bunch of wretches like us. I'm sure that if he were here today, he would still be sighing. Yes. Tyler, what are you doing? Right? All right. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us, that you have compassion on us, and that despite uh, our, our frequent need for, for sighing, our, our foolish attitudes and everything that we do that uh, really prompts you to, to turn your back on us and leave us. You, you haven't done that. You'll never do that. That uh, You are always going to be with us. You are always going to care for us. And uh, We thank you for your promises that, uh, that you've given to us, that you have sworn uh, by yourself. There's no greater thing that you can swear by, but um, that you, you love us and care for us and uh, we can take your promises to the bank knowing that you are good, that you are God, that you are not a man that you should lie, or a son of man that you should repent. We can trust in you. God, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you this morning. Amen.